welcome to the Dear Writer podcast. I'm Sarah. And I'm Ashley. We're two aspiring collaborative authors sharing our writing journey with you. The ups, the downs, and everything in between. Whether you're just starting out or a more experienced writer, we hope that you'll find this podcast inspiring and thought-provoking. And here's the show. Hey everyone, welcome back to Dear Writer. This is episode 35 and it's another one of our talking shop episodes where we chat about the resources that we've been using to help us grow as writers. Like most of these short episodes, we'll just jump straight in. So Sarah, what's your tool of the month this month? Well, I have had very limited time, so I'm afraid that it is sort of one that I read a little while ago, similar to last time's one. (laughs) I understand the lack of time thing. Yeah, it's a really good book. So my choice for this month is a book called The Magic Words, Writing Great Books for Children and Young Adults by Cheryl B. Klein. I'm just going to read the short bio at the back of the book. So it says that Cheryl is the executive editor at Arthur A. Levine Books slash Scholastic Incorporated, where she edits a wide array of popular and award-winning titles. So she does have some fairly good credentials, I would say, to be writing such a book. And what I really liked about it is not only does it give a ton of great advice on the art and craft of writing, but it also goes deeper into the young adult genre as well as, you know, uh, middle grade and children's fiction, and talks about the age of the characters, how to write from a younger perspective, on average, how many words each age group is reading, and how to relate to your audience. So it's a very interesting Mm, book. It does sound really interesting, especially given we're writing teen fiction. And it is kind of hard to find references, references, I guess we'll go with that, uh, that are quite specific to teen fiction because a lot of the books that are very general yeah and you know like this one I would say if you were writing in another genre you would still find it really helpful because it still has really really great advice but it is really nice to have that genre specific kind of feel to it and in saying that I sort of pulled out a short paragraph about how she kind of views sort of writing books for young readers and what's important for them so as young people are not yet fixed into one way of being they constantly explore their worlds and test who they might become most children's and young adult fiction dramatizes one subset or strand of these explorations and tests children and teens may lack wise judgment or the ability to articulate their emotions within certain situations though so do many old adults to be fair but they feel, think, and act with the same seriousness and intensity that grown-ups do. And the best books for young readers honour that emotional intensity. That came fairly early on in the book, and I would say Mm -hmm. that's a really good point to bring out because, you know, too often as adults, we kind of forget what it's like and then we pile on all these assumptions. So it's really important to highlight the fact that hey, they're going through a great deal of change and they've got these really strong emotions. So in order to be able to relate to them with your books, you have to bring that to your own writing. So I thought that was an interesting quote. I think so too. It really, she did a very good job of capturing how I view young adult fiction as well. Like that whole paragraph was like, yeah, no, that sums up young adult fiction, like pretty good. (laughs) 
yeah, pretty much. But then again, as I said, it also has just some really solid advice. And again, with this book, as I find with a lot of writing books that are really good, um, it was really hard to try and divide a couple of quotes here and there from the book so you could get a feel for it, especially because she winds them in so deeply into examples and stuff that you try and like separate one or two sentences and it's like, oh, yeah. well, you kind of need this bit to put it in context. and <laughs> Kind of need to read you the whole chapter. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I feel like you need to buy this book. But I did manage to find a couple of pieces. The first piece was on character and it was out of a chapter called identity and choice so here we go she can have plenty of charming quirks a distinct cultural heritage all the personality and kindness in the world a truly wonderful essence but they'll just sit on the page until she does something within the novel her actions yet at the same time if she didn't have that depth of personality and background there would be nothing to distinguish her from a robot or any other creature capable of carrying out the function she serves in the story. What makes the character come alive on the page is the unity of essence and action. Mm, I like it. Essence and action. Yeah. It's a really great way of summing up character, you know, like it's not mm. just one or the other. You could have like all the backstory in the world. And unless you couple that with action and something happening within the plot and the character themselves doing something not just reacting mm-hmm. it's just gonna fall flat on its face because it's like well, what's the point what is she doing there and the other way around you know like she's doing something but who the heck is she yeah <laughs> why is she doing it I like that description of character very much yeah she also went into she talked about pacing, which I thought was really interesting because you don't really read about pacing very much. Yeah. I would say it's like one of the few books that actually had like a little section about how to pace your novel, mm-hmm. which I thought was quite helpful because it's something that we've struggled with in the past. Still do struggle with. It's all going. And the reader's like, whoa. <laughs> it's always happening 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 and yeah we find it hard to slow down sometimes <laughs> it's like oh it's boring yeah or in our ancient greece one where it feels like nothing's happening <laughs> yeah yeah even though things are i think mm-hmm. maybe we're just finally finding balance one can hope <laughs> but anyways i'll read out this short piece i read about pacing so the chapter's called movement and momentum oh sounds like music <laughs> yeah it does but The pace of the novel will be determined by the reader's investment in your characters, the stakes, and the narrative questions. If readers care about your protagonist and she comes under threat, from something as large as a dragon or as small as a best friend moving away, readers will share the character's sense of jeopardy and read faster to try to get beyond it. Hmm. I have definitely experienced that when I've been reading. I read fast when it gets to like the intense parts. It's interesting that she brings up pace that the reader reads it. Yes. That's quite interesting. Rather than the pace of like how close your events are in the novel. Yeah. 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 That's quite, I haven't really thought about pacing in that way before which is interesting yeah me neither it makes sense she went on to say you know basically the more involved your readers are with the character and the more under threat your character is the faster they're gonna read 
which Mm -hmm. possibly explains as well why we kind of write and sometimes we think it's slower than what it is because we know what's going to happen right but the readers Mm. don't so they read faster because they're like oh my god yeah that's a really good point actually yeah so I found that quite helpful and just the entire book is just packed. (laughs) I'll show you the cover. Oh, yes, please. It sounds really interesting. You guys can't see it, but it's quite cute. Oh, it's like a book open as like a flat earth with rain cloud. That's quite cute. Yeah, it's a really comprehensive book. Again, a larger one. Um, It's not a fast (laughs) read, but it doesn't waffle. Mm -hmm. Every piece in it feels like it's necessary to be able to understand the plot yeah and the (laughs) plot I guess it is technically the plot I know what you mean (laughs) (laughs) to to understand how to create a good plot is what I meant to say (laughs) that's funny but yeah so that's basically oh the other thing that I was going to say about it is again it's one of those books that have exercises um, at the end of each chapter as well so you can kind of apply what you learned. And I'm pretty sure it was this book that gave me the idea to create the playlist. Oh, so, yeah. Cool. Yeah. Anyways, what was your choice for the month, Ashley? So this month I did something a little bit different. If people like it, I might do it more regularly. As much as I enjoy reading books on craft and things, because I am an academic, I always tend to gravitate toward uh, journal articles and like peer-reviewed journal articles. And then it got me thinking, I was like, I wonder if there are creative writing journal articles or if, you know, or is everything already known? So it's all super old articles and maybe I won't find anything. So one day I did a bit of a search and I, to my surprise, I found tons of really interesting theories and stuff uh, to do with creative writing and all sorts of things. So I thought I'd share one with you today, which I found actually really interesting. The title is a little bit intimidating, but (laughs) it was actually turned out to be quite digestible. So this one's quite a technical article about what it's called world line and narrative realism. So a big weighty title, but it's not too long. It's only like, I don't know, 10 pages or something. It is by Julia C. Blau and Amy Rose Capetta from the Journal of Creative Writing Studies. If you're hunting for the reference, it's volume five uh, from 2020. So nice and recent, but I'll put the link in the show notes if you guys want to read it yourself. So I thought I'd just kind of summarize what the article was about and kind of tell you what I took from it uh, and maybe it will help you. So this article is basically a discussion about how, and we all know this, how difficult it is to create a really immersive narrative and all the difficulties writers have making their worlds or stories that they make feel real, even if um, the setting of the novel isn't in an unfamiliar or otherworldly setting or time frame. So these are novels like fantasy and sci-fi, but of course it also happens in our everyday uh, normal novels I guess that aren't set like that so they had a bit of a part about literary fiction how people are able to do it quite naturally there but then equally naturally you can be following I don't know an orc (laughs) marching around (laughs) some other planet and you're like oh yeah this is totally normal this isn't this isn't weird at all I totally feel like I'm there and then they describe the problem which I think everyone has faced where the author's 
for, I'm going to use the exact example that um, the authors use for this paper. So they say the reader is enjoying a book set in space with aliens as the main characters. And then the reader says, hey, that's not realistic. And it's not because that we're following aliens somewhere in outer space. It's because the character has chosen to leave their backpack behind before they go on an adventure. And that's the point where the reader's like, nope. I'm out. Something's <laughs> something's off with this. It's not the aliens. It's not that it's on Mars or some other planet or that there's spaceships. It's the fact that this alien forgot its backpack before the adventure. I thought that was hilarious. <laughs> I love how it's something so small, but it's so true. I remember watching The Expanse and there's one scene where one of the main characters I mean, it's a short distance, but it's still space. And she decides to escape the ship that she's imprisoned on. She's Mm -hmm. going to open the airlock, launch herself out without any type of stuff (laughs) at all and push herself towards this other ship, which is like super close. And she makes it and she does like, you know, sustain injuries and stuff like that. But at the same time, I'm like, I don't know that she she could come back from that. Like, I feel like that (laughs) was a bit too far. (laughs) But you just saying without the backpack just reminded me of this scene. (laughs) Those small little things. No, you know, it doesn't matter that they're in space and she's part of, like, this space race that has never even been to Earth. (laughs) That doesn't matter. No, that's not the problem. (laughs) The backpack. The problem is that she shouldn't really be able to survive yeah outside the ship (laughs) so anyways um so that's the (laughs) phenomenon that these authors are talking about and they spend the rest of the paper trying to give us some tools or a specific tool which they term the world line in order to prevent it or make your characters uh, well make your novel experience for your readers a lot more immersive so they actually explain it using a psychological phenomena called the ecological perspective so they say that when a reader encounters a fictional world that they don't know anything about the first thing they do is interpret it with all of the same tools that they use to understand their own world and this is what they call this is the ecological perspective and this is how we work in our own world even if we go somewhere new we use all of you know our tools to understand you know what we've walked into for example I'm using another example that they use because I found them very they illustrated the point very well for example we don't look at a tree and see a branch as a fly-toable destination (laughs) because we cannot fly. And birds, on the contrary, don't see, for example, a baseball as catchable because they can't catch and they don't have hands and they don't know what baseball (laughs) is. And they call these things that we, um, these things that we, you know, look at and recognize as something that we, they say, can doable. These are called affordances, and that is how we navigate the world around us. So everything we look at or everything we do is because we have some sort of association to these things, which is based on all of our past experiences and what we've learned. So they say that this can then be applied to the characters in your novel. Not that that makes sense. <laughs> Yeah. So all of the backstory you give your character influences all of the quote unquote affordances that they have. And as they learn and grow and change throughout a novel, they begin to navigate their worlds slightly differently based on their new experiences and things. And it is our job as a writer to make sure that from their background and all their previous experiences, they notice and interact with all of the things in the world that they should. So, for example, I would notice things different 
to a bird who would notice things different to a dog, um, your characters will notice things differently to each other. And that's kind of mm-hmm. the basis of this whole world line thing. I actually found it quite interesting. So they, I think they coined the term world line, I think, from what I can gather from the article, because there's no other references to it. Um, and it does make a lot of sense. So the authors of this paper, Blau and Capetta, they use the concept of a world line to describe a character and to have something for us as writers to keep in mind to make sure our characters are always acting consistently so that our story is immersive and we don't get taken out of it because we forget a backpack or they weirdly notice something you're like that's strange they wouldn't do that normally yeah so if you think about your world that the novel is set in it has an they call it an infinite set of events so these are the rules of your world so if it's fantasy it's all of well yeah the rules of your fantasy setting for example if it's set in the real world there's also a whole bunch of rules for example if it's set in a military setting there's the whole hierarchy there's all of the military with rules I'm saying rules a lot but whatever it's fine it's early rules ranks rules ranks um, and all of these things which have shaped your character so these are called the infinite set and they make up the world the whole world in your novel and you need to know what all of them are but you don't necessarily need to include all of them so if you yeah. imagine this infinite set as a large circle Within the infinite set is your character's world line. So like a smaller circle within the big circle uh, of the infinite set. And this is the collection of events and quote unquote affordances that are meaningful to your particular character. And they make up the entirety of your character's life. So within the infinite set of rules in your world, there's your basically your character set of rules, which have been influenced by the world outside. So Within your character's world line is then your narrative. So that's your story. And it doesn't encompass everything in your entire character's life, but it's focusing on a small subset of events that make up your story. And in this narrative, it does include a lot of stuff from your character's world line, but it doesn't include anything from any other character's world line, if that makes any sense. So obviously, if you have multiple perspectives and you'll have like multiple little world lines. (laughs) Yeah, because only your character views exactly it has their exactly. specific experiences, so that creates their own world line. Exactly. So this means that when you're focusing on your character in your narrative, you're pretty much only including things from their world line or what they would interact with or navigate with and you try and avoid any other factors, including what they say, author curiosity. <laughs> Or even what we as authors think the reader needs to know at a particular point in the story. Because our characters, yeah, don't know. I can imagine that happens quite a lot. Yeah, so you, I can see it. It's like when you're like, oh, are they really going to pick up that they didn't grab this thing? And then the writer specifically puts something like, they left the pen in the pen holder. You're like, so what? This makes no sense. So-and-so wouldn't, like, wouldn't notice that. You don't write that you've forgotten something until you're like, oh, where's my pen? <laughs> I think I have an example of this later to share with oh, you Oh, cool. <laughs> but we'll save that for later because it's to do with the, the book that I was reading. Oh, right. So yeah, so that's 
the world line. And I actually thought it was quite an interesting way to think about your characters. In the rest of the book, they use Pride and Prejudice as an example. And they go through all different types of ways that authors break the immersive experience to their readers and then describe ways that it could have been remedied using the world line. And they also use examples in novels where, for example, like, the voice is inconsistent, but it works okay. because of certain factors, like the characters changing like really dramatically, which makes sense that he starts to notice different things because, you know, his world line is his taking a different direction than the way you thought. Well, they may have like conflicting values. Yeah, exactly. Stuff like which that. Which is what so I've that- been struggling with <laughs> my own like my own book that I've been editing. It's got like conflicting wants. Right. Which is hard to align. (laughs) Maybe you could read the article. I think they have a section about that. They have maintaining voice, maintaining character consistency, maintaining character desire, maintaining proper timing. That sounds really good. Yeah, it's quite interesting. So I found it quite eye-opening. I was like, huh, I've learned something today. That's awesome. And you gave a really good overview of that paper because, you know, like it could be hard for some people to even sort of access it so I think it's good that Mm. you gave it such a sort of strong description oh thanks felt like I was lecturing (laughs) (laughs) I felt like I was sitting there for like a lesson too but it it was a really good one so (laughs) yay anyways we should move on to what we are reading for fun Sarah would you like to go first sure so my book that I've been reading this month is another teen fiction book and it's called even if we break by Marieke Nishkamp. Nishkamp. I'm not sure how to say her name, okay. so I apologize if anyone has that surname. I think it's Dutch or something. I think she's from the Netherlands. So yeah, um, I struggle to read Dutch. So I can <laughs> sympathize with you. It's been an interesting read. I kind of started it and I didn't gel with it immediately, and then I was curious, so I looked it up on Goodreads just to see what the reviews were like. And they weren't the best. We'll say that. No, no. I think it ended up with about like three to three and a half stars or something on Goodreads. And probably is not as good as her better known novel of This Is Where It Ends, which people may have heard of. But it's still a decent book. And I can kind of see why, having read them both, that it hasn't been rated quite as high. But Basically, it's a young adult psychological thriller about a group of teens who meet up in a cabin in the woods on the side of a mountain for like a role-playing game. But things go badly and pretty soon they're being picked off one by one by some unknown killer. Oh, <laughs> okay. Dark. Um, Got it. Yeah. <laughs> Her books are quite dark, but I quite like that about them. <laughs> Anyways, the, the trouble with it is that firstly, the killer is pretty obvious from the get-go and I think Uh. her attempt at bringing in a red herring is fairly clumsy and almost makes it more obvious in some strange way (laughs) oh no there are also a few pieces where I was a little bit confused over what was happening and it came across as a mistake until several paragraphs later I realized (laughs) it was supposed to be setting up the next event (laughs) 
That's not exactly what you want to happen, is it? No, I'm going to read out my experience. This is a real-time experience of when (laughs) I was texting Ashley. Oh, yes. And this is also kind of what I think is possibly an example of what Ashley was talking about with... The world line. Yeah, with the world line and like the author kind of trying to push in like something that the character wouldn't necessarily usually notice. I mean, I don't know if the character would have noticed it, but it just, it felt out of place. Yeah. Okay, here it goes. So I sent Ashley these messages as we were talking about mistakes of the month for our next podcast. (laughs) Speaking of mistakes of the month, just found one in the book I'm reading. It was talking about the shadows lengthening as the evening grew later and the fireplace burning low. I was like, wait a minute. I thought that was an electric fire. (laughs) Ashley thought this was funny, but then I continued. Even went back earlier in the chapter to check. Yep. Electric fire. Lol. Copy editing fail. And then the next (laughs) message reminds me of our tent door that didn't exist. (laughs) And then the next one. Oh, wait. Now the fire is roaring to life. I'm not sure if it's pre-programmed or what. (laughs) And then, but now the fire is actually on fire. The characters have (laughs) finally clued in. This isn't supposed to be happening. (laughs) Apparently I'm quicker off the mark than these characters. Lol. (laughs) And then the author made that very confusing though. (laughs) Followed by laughing face, laughing face. Then randomly crossed fingers And then, oops, that was supposed to be a laughing face. (laughs) So that was my experience of reading this. I enjoyed it. I was like, oh, that's an amazing mistake. And then, wait, it's not a mistake. This is really confusing. I don't understand. It was was confusing because I was like, I didn't really think electric fires burned low. Like, I thought they were kind of like static with, you know, the amount of flames that come out of it. So why is it burning low? But then I realized that she kind of put that in to like build a contrast between the flames and suddenly roaring to life. And I was like, oh, I see. But yeah, I felt like the character shouldn't have noticed it because it should have been just static, you know, like it's not something that would have usually been noticed by a character Mm -hmm. if it was the same throughout them coming and then, do you know what I mean? Yeah, I know what you mean. So you wouldn't have been like, oh, look, it's gone like, oh, it's gone up. Oh, it's done this. You might just notice it like roaring and being like super yeah. aggressive. Like, oh, something's wrong. Yeah, exactly. So that was just like one of the random little things. I mean, but overall, the book was entertaining. Like it held my interest. I've read the entire book probably within a week. So can't have been that bad. <laughs> yeah and I really liked the characters I felt I mean a couple of them were a little 2d but that was because they were more minor characters which is also partly why it was easy to guess the villain too because ah the it wasn't quite developed enough right so you're kind of like well these are all main characters they're uh minor characters they're probably all dying who's left well (laughs) yeah because you were feeling like really in sync with these characters and you knew it had to be like one of one of the teens So you're like, well, probably. <laughs> I don't want to give away any spoilers, so I won't say. <laughs> Just in case people want to read it. But you'll probably, you'll see what I mean. You'll be like, yes, it's this person if you read it. Anyways, what <laughs> what was your choice for leisure reading? <laughs> so I actually haven't had any time to read 
any books for literally the past month. I've been so busy, not getting home till nine o'clock, like four or five nights during the weekday, kind of busy. So I have not had time to read. However, you know, I was talking about how I was looking at all sorts of journal articles. I did find one that was I found really, really, really interesting. Um, and it definitely wasn't long enough to do like a whole, you know, massive review on. And it it's more kind of about just someone's perspective about the historical fiction genre. So I thought I'd share that because it's it's quite short. The article was only like five pages. And so it's just an interesting talking point. So the article is called Beyond Is It True? The Play Frame in Historical Fiction. It's by Melissa Addy. It's 2021 nice and new and it's in the journal new writing and melissa she argues in this article that historical fiction should be judged equally on historical accuracy and the fictive elements of the work not just on historical accuracy which is the current norm mostly when people read historical fiction and i was like yes yeah (laughs) um especially with the ancient greece oh yes (laughs) She says, um, by people exclusively, or pretty much exclusively judging how historically accurate it is, authors have to exhaustingly defend every single little deviation from history within their books. And there's even a term for this. They call it the anxiety of authenticity. Oh my goodness. And I was like, I totally have that. <laughs> yeah. It's just about how it often leads to some authors not being able to finish books or not even start some historical fiction novels due to a fear or like an anxiety of not being able to tell it 100% accurately and then, I don't know, offend someone or whatever. And I was like, interesting, because I felt that at some points, not to that extent, but you're just like, oh my gosh, like this one little, like, did they have a fork? This is like, gonna, <laughs> like paralyzes you because you're like, I don't know. And what if someone notices? So that's kind of how she started. And then she goes through the three different types of historical fiction writers, which I was like, this is a thing, which I also found very interesting. <laughs> <laughs> so that she says there's the, um, the ventriloquist, which is one of the rarest examples. And that's a historical fiction writer who uses lots and lots of material that they use pretty much word for word from the original source. That does not and sound like, very good. <laughs> No. So the one example I had was um, Hashtag Berlin 45 by Philip Gibson. And I did look, look into it briefly. He basically does, he takes the last few days of World War II and converts it into like a Twitter feed or something from all of the different leaders. That's weird. Yeah. And then like has like his personal commentary about it. And I was like, okay. But I was like, well, that's definitely not us. <laughs> Nope. (laughs) Um, The second type is the mosaic maker. And this is by far the most common type of historical fiction writer. It's where they take fragments of an incomplete history and add a fictive element to tie the whole story together. And they say, this is a quote from her, the mosaic maker is intrigued by scanty history and seeks to create their version of the past from fragments. I remember the example she used was the Underground Railroad by Colson whitehead but i can think of lots of other examples too that's usually the type of historical fiction i think that i read yeah and probably uh, i don't know i was gonna say ties in mostly with ours but she did say is a gradient between um the mosaic maker and the next one which is the magician who uses magical realism to work around historical events that kind of box you in as a writer and their example is the book thief for that so those are the three 
types and they're like it's more of a gradient she says and I was like yeah I think we're probably somewhere in the middle yeah I definitely think as I was just reading your notes before you were talking about it I had already like kind of read it and been like (laughs) okay so we're like between the mosaic maker and the magician then yeah I think so we do like kind of fill in the fragments of an incomplete history but then we also use elements of sort of magical realism yeah as well so yeah so I, I found that a little interesting part about it this article and then um at the so she goes through all of this and then at the end uh she has some you know points for people to think about so she asks us to look beyond the factual accuracy and ask more interesting questions about the insights lessons and questions that are being raised by historical fiction authors and it's more than just like repeating history verbatim to the reader so I thought I'd actually quote the end of the article because I thought it was quite it was quite a good quote mm-hmm. and I'll probably end on that so she writes the past is strange and it is somehow better and more profound to engage with it through aesthetic complication than to try and accurately write it by being obviously inaccurate about the past we are forced to question what we are reading and inspired to think differently about the past and the narratives around it I quite like that I'm like yeah. Obviously, there's some elements that you need to stick to the historical event, but it made me feel a little bit better about, you know, changing things slightly to suit the story. Or if you're not super, super accurate, maybe it's okay. Yeah. Yeah. So I just it was interesting. And I was like, as a reader, I'll also, although I usually just read historical fiction because I enjoy the adventures that the characters go on. Yeah. So yeah, that was my little, my, what was I reading this month? So that was called Beyond <laughs> Is It True? The play frame in historical fiction. Sounds very interesting. It was interesting. Learned lots. All right. So with that being said, should we round this episode up? Sounds good to me. So there are still some spots left on our author spotlight section. And if you would like to apply to that, go to our website at lindersoncreations.com and hover your mouse over the podcast tab. And it should bring down a dropout list where you can click on the Be Featured on Dear Writer. And next time on Dear Writer, it's our main podcast where we are going to explain our publishing journey with all of you, starting with our attempts to access traditional publishing. Mm-hmm. I'm <laughs> slightly wary of this coming episode. It should yep. be interesting. I guess, you know, it's almost quite a personal journey that writers go on to end up with that published book. But we are willing to share it with you guys. And yeah, so don't judge us too harshly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm sure I'm sure you're all very nice and you will appreciate us sharing our story with you. And maybe you'll be able to find some common ground with us. I think hopefully. it's going to bring up some interesting points as well about like each of the different methods of publishing. Mm-hmm. And hopefully you guys can get something out of that. Hopefully. So, yeah. So if you'd like to know any more about us and our writing projects, you can visit us at our website, lindersoncreations.com, or you can contact us on Facebook or Instagram, which has the handle Lindison Creations. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or subscribe on your podcatcher of choice. Tell your friends about us and we'll be back next week. Happy writing, everyone. Mm-hmm.